Hello, may I just welcome you this evening to our special event, and it's good to see that there's a full house uh, at this particular time of the year. My name is Chaloka Bayani. I'm a senior lecturer in international law um, in the law department here at LSC, and I'll be acting as chair uh, for the event this evening. Our speaker tonight is very distinguished, no other than Geoffrey Robertson, and he will be speaking to us on the case of the Pope, Vatican Accountability for Human Rights Abuse, the subject of his more recent publication. I should just say by way of caution that this is an academic debate. Uh, in the best traditions of the LSC, we invite intellectual honesty, objectivity, and of course critical thoughts. It's not a lecture on religion, it's not a lecture on the Roman Catholic Church, but it should be seen for what it is that the accountability of human rights attends to states, it also attends to international organizations, it also attends to individuals. And so far as the Holy See is a state, the book addresses the issue of statehood uh, and the extent to which the Holy See may be held accountable for human rights abuses uh, from that particular perspective. Geoffrey Robertson QC needs no uh, specific introduction, as I said. He's founder and head of Doughty Chambers, the largest human rights practice in the UK. He has appeared in the courts of many countries as counsel in leading cases in constitutional, criminal, and international law, and served as the first president of the UN War Crimes Court in Sierra Leone, where he authored landmark decisions on the illegality of recruiting child soldiers, the legal limits of amnesties, and the right of journalists to protect their sources. He has led missions for Amnesty International and acted for Human Rights Watch, in the Pinochet case, and his successful argument in the Privy Council case of Pride versus Jamaica has secured the lives uh, of hundreds of death row prisoners. He defended in the last two cases brought for blasphemy in Britain against Salman Rushdie and gay newspapers, represented Catholic lawyers and youth detained without trial by Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, and was counsel in Bowman versus the United Kingdom, which established the right of Catholics to campaign against abortion laws during elections. He sits as a recorder and is a master of Middle Temple and is a visiting professor of human rights law at Queen Mary College. In 2008, he was elected by UN staff and then appointed by the UN Secretary General as a distinguished jurist member of the UN Justice Council. He has an illustrious line of publications which include Crimes Against Humanity, The Struggle for Global Justice, The Justice Game, the award-winning study of Friar Charles I, and he adds to this now his latest book, The Case of the Pope, Vatican Accountability for Human Rights Abuse. He will speak to us for some 30 to 40 minutes, uh, after which there will be time for questions. We'll take about three questions at one time, and please make the questions short, precise, and uh, also to the point. The, the question and answer time is not an occasion to make speeches as it were, or to repeat what would have been said by, by the lecturer. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Geoffrey Robertson. Thank you very much, Dr. Miami, for that uh, overkind introduction. It is a great honor to be here at LSE and your 
new building, usually when I come I have to find my way through the rabbit warren over the road and this is really a revelation. It's a terrific law faculty you've got here. Dr. Biami has done incredibly important work on displaced people and the very important protocol that he drafted for protection of women and children in the Great Lakes area in Africa. Uh, Christine Chinkin, of course, a professor here, can't be here has to be in Kosovo, but uh, she has been an inspiration in uh, feminist jurisprudence and, of course, uh, is one of the sources that uh, is cited in my book. And thank you for braving the weather, the tube strikes, the uh, traffic uh, to come in, not to mention the Jewish holiday. It's a great, I imagine it's the real downside of being an atheist that you don't get religious holidays. <laughs> Uh, I'm, of course, I'm not an atheist, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I can see both sides of any argument. <laughs> but I do have a faith, <laughs> touchingly naive though it be, in the rule of law and in the credo of freeborn John Lilburn and Dr. Thomas Fuller that however, however high ye be, the law is above you. And so with that background, I come to the case of the Pope, the curious case uh, of the Pope in the daytime. It is, uh, he's a head of state, uh, although it's a state with no people and no territory other than a palace and some gardens, a state which is really a religion uh, because it's uh, regarded as a state. It's the only religion whose leaders have immunity and privileged platforms at the United Nations. The case of a state which has its own law, canon law, which it operates in secret, in parallel to criminal law jurisdiction and in contradiction, as I shall explain, to criminal law jurisdiction which enables it to harbour paedophile priests to traffic them to other countries. The case of a pope who, in the case of Cardinal Ratzinger, as he once was, uh, from 1981 until 2005, was head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith of the Vatican, which was responsible for dealing with uh, misbehaving priests. And it was on his watch, as I shall explain, that tens of thousands of children were abused by the priests whom it was his duty to discipline and to defrock. Well, it's no part of my object tonight to criticize Catholicism uh, or Catholics with whom I've worked uh, for many years against uh, the death penalty uh, or the Catholic faith which brings joy and comfort to millions throughout the world. My object is to try and explain how that great faith has, as Lord Acton famously predicted, and people don't realize that when Lord Acton said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, he was actually talking about the popes. Uh, I think that the Catholic Church has, or the Vatican has, to an extent been corrupted by the power and pretensions of statehood, its claim to operate a canon law process independently uh, of local law, has contributed to what should properly be seen as one of the great human rights horrors of our time. But first, I want to, I have to, I think, establish the facts of this phenomenon 
of the child abuse scandal to deal with the claim made by Anne Whittacombe in The Guardian this morning, for example, that there's no greater incidence of uh, child abuse in the Catholic Church as there is in other, uh, in the Royal Bank of Scotland uh, and other uh, institutions. But then I want to show how the Church, uh, through its powers as a state and its use of canon law, which I think is a, such a discreditable process that it doesn't really deserve the description of law at all, uh, has been able to withdraw this particular crime from the criminal justice system, almost giving a benefit of clergy. Then, thirdly, I want to examine whether this uh, church should be regarded in law or in fact as a state uh, in light of the way it was created by Mussolini to uh, serve his fascist purpose and how in the light of the way it's used its statehood uh, at the United Nations to block developments in human rights. And finally, uh, I want to suggest that the way forward may be to take a leaf out of the good book, the Bible, to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to abjure statehood to make a rule that wherever evidence emerges of credible evidence of child abuse that it be handed over to the police and not dealt with under pontifical secrecy uh, in darkness and uh, without punishment. Well, any church that requires priests to take a vow of celibacy and which makes masturbation a mortal sin must be very careful in relation to the characters who uh, inhabit its priesthood. We know, we'll see, that it has been infiltrated by a number of, uh, by paedophiles, but it has, I think, for the most part, much of the abuse is really from people who are deeply lonely, sexually frustrated, perhaps even in love with the subject of the abuse, and uh, uh, are not clinically uh, affected. But particularly when that church takes children at the age of seven. That is when they go to their first communion, have their first confession, and presents them, almost indoctrinates them with the idea that the priest is the agent of God. The priest can do no wrong, the priest performs the miracle of transubstantiation, uh, and the priest can do anything to them. That is why Children, I think, have unflinchingly obeyed priests uh, who have asked them to uh, involve themselves in sexual behavior. There is, so a church which has these two remarkable and different uh, situations of clerical celibacy and children at a very young age, the Vatican Observer last week is arguing that the age should be reduced even to five. Uh, has a particular duty to watch and to ward. Now, the Church, the Vatican, was warned of the enormous danger that it faced by the paracletes. The paracletes are a very fine order who look after uh, uh, priests in, with problems. And they sussed out the problem of the paedophile priest in as early as the 60s. The head of the paraclete order was writing to the Pope saying this is a time bomb. The seminaries are awash with 
paedophiles. They, we are running an enormous risk. What uh, happened, and it was taken seriously, there was a proposal to acquire an island, one of the Grenadine islands, on which paedophile priests would be exiled. Uh, it, it came to nothing. The Grenadines wanted to develop a tourist industry. <laughs> and, uh, so, so that proposal was uh, put aside. And the dam welled up. It welled up because of all priestly misbehavior was dealt with in secret under canon law when anyone made a complaint they were bound on pain of excommunication not to tell and so uh, largely in secret the uh, the dam built up and it burst it burst in Boston thanks to some brilliant journalism uh, in 2002 where the scandal of massive child abuse was first exposed uh, now, today, the church has paid out $1.6 billion in America alone uh, in damages. Forbes magazine thinks it will reach $5 billion before the settlement. But the Catholic bishops, to do them justice in America, they did one very brave thing. They retained the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a very fine organization of criminologists, to do a survey of the damage. What were the true statistics? Now, these were understated because the John Jay College didn't have any compulsive powers and a lot of, uh, there was quite a bit of uh, nervousness and not allowing them to see church records. But their conclusion was that they found 10,600 victims, 10,600 children who had been, most of many have sodomized, uh, or at least masturbated, by priests, and they found 4,300 molesting priests. And they concluded that at least 4.3% of the priesthood were child molesters. Now that, uh, I see from the National Catholic Reporter in America, that's now gone up to 5.3%. 22% of the victims were under 11 and 76% of, uh, of the credible allegations had never been reported to a law enforcement agency, had never uh, got to the ears uh, of the police or to law enforcement. Now, that of course, uh, those statistics were appalling the church replied saying this is an American problem. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was on behalf of the Vatican, said less than 1% of priests are guilty. Well, at the John Jay College, 4.3% showed that, were wrong, that was wrong. A number of cases came to light in the 80s and 90s on Cardinal Ratzinger's watch. One appalling one was Father Murphy. 200 deaf boys were buggered by Father Murphy in Wisconsin. Uh, he was old, a canon law process was begun. Cardinal Ratzinger said, and these letters were revealed in the course of legal action because they were, of course, um, under pontifical secrecy, they were uh, actually um, unavailable other than through legal action against the dioceses. He's, he was worried about the risk of increasing scandal 
He emphasized the need for secrecy. When the priest became very ill, he ordered the canon law trial to end so that the priest, whom he knew to be guilty of buggering 200 deaf boys, uh, could die a respected member of the Brotherhood. Then there was Father Kiesel, the other uh, case that's come to light, who had actually been convicted, and, and uh, some of these priests are convicted because, of course, uh, the police hear of it from other sources. Um, he was convicted for molesting, torturing and molesting two boys in a monastery in San Francisco. Uh, Ratzinger sat on it for four years, uh, and he wrote, I am afraid of detriment within the community of Christ's faithful if anything were done uh, to this, if this priest were defrocked. And he said because of his youth, uh, he was only 38, uh, he was allowed to continue to work with children. And uh, he, of course, uh, in working with children, uh, continued to abuse them and was finally jailed for a very long time. But it was Cardinal Ratzinger's signature on the letter in which he placed the good of the universal church above the need to remove this incorrigible child rapist from it that uh, raised real concerns. So they were, that was the American situation and uh, where the good of the universal church overrode uh, the rights of children. And the church said it's an American problem. It's because of uh, Jewish journalists on the New York Times and other papers. It's, it's quite seriously. It's because of tort lawyers, ambulance chasing tort lawyers. Uh, it's because of the secularization of American society. Uh, and it is, of course, because of the devil. <laughs> so... Uh, it is an American problem. And the suggestion that there was made that uh, the church should actually um, uh, report uh, pedophiles, priests, to the, um, to, to, uh, the police was uh, appalling for all the cardinals. Uh, we've got to keep things in the family, said Cardinal Hoyos. Archbishop Hemmons said this would damage the presumption of innocence. Cardinal Rodriguez said this is akin to Stalinist persecution. To suggest, and then he moved his metaphor westwards. We're pastors. We're not agents of the FBI or CIA. I'd be prepared to go to jail rather than to harm one of my priests. And there's the wonderfully named Cardinal Bravo of Nicaragua who said victims are like Potiphar's wife. They're driven to lie by pleasure, spite, and unrequited love. So uh, that was, and Cardinal Ratzinger's voice, too, was raised at this time against what he called a manipulated and planned campaign in the U.S. press. So, was it merely a U.S. problem? We come then to Ireland, the extraordinary three reports, three judicial reports that came out at the end of last year, which described child abuse in Catholic boys' institutions as, I quote, endemic. It happens all the time, widespread and systematic. Uh, it was uh, thousands of children entrusted to priests in Ireland had been uh, buggered. I, I was 
gave an interview yesterday to BBC America, and uh, halfway through, we suddenly, we suddenly, took, the producer came on and said, "You, you must not use that word. It can't. Uh, the Americans can't cope with uh, with that word." So uh, we we moved to sodomy. Uh, <laughs> But the, the Ryan, Judge Ryan uh, said it was abuse was systematic in boys' institutions, quite common in girls' institutions. The uh, devastating result of Murphy, uh, Judge Murphy's report, 46 pedophile priests who abused between them thousands of children. He said that the Dublin uh, church's preoccupation in dealing with cases of child sexual abuse with a maintenance of secrecy, I quote, the avoidance of scandal, the protection of the reputation of the church, and the preservation of its assets. That was uh, a damning indictment in Ireland. Of course, Cardinal um, Brady, the Catholic primate, was uh, in his, as a young Catholic church lawyer supervised the uh, swearing of children to secrecy uh, over Father Brendan Smythe who'd abused over a hundred children in the course of his career. So it wasn't just an American problem, uh, it was an Irish problem as well. And let's look at other countries. In Canada, 80 million dollars had to be paid by the church. There's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission about the abuse of Aboriginal children in ca largely Catholic homes. 80% of the homes were Catholic. In Australia, uh, in Melbourne alone, 300 cases uh, of abusive priests have been paid out as compensation. Only one of whom uh, has of those priests was defrocked uh, by the church, the, the defrocking process has to go to the Vatican, and it's the Vatican who's ultimately responsible. Malta, 850 priests, 50 at the moment, uh, in uh, monas confined to their monastery uh, because of their uh, child abuse. Uh, in Europe, we've had revelations, uh, Bishop uh, Ratzinger, before he went to the Vatican in 1981, approved the transfer of Peter Hullerman, a known pedophile priest, uh, to other, uh, another parish where he committed other crimes, uh, which he wouldn't have committed had Bishop Ratzinger, as he then was, uh, taken the proper course and uh, sent the evidence to the police. We've had uh, the Bruges, the bishops in Bruges, in Belgium, in Germany, uh, case after case. And everyone says, wait till they get to Africa, because so many of the trafficked paedophile priests were sent to Africa or sent to Latin America. The other couple of months ago, the head of the African Bishops' Conference actually said uh, they have sent us wolves in sheep's clothing. He made that speech when the Catholic bishops of Africa were being lectured at the Vatican by the Pope uh, about the evils of divorce. So uh, there you have it. Uh, and Latin America is uh, a, a situation again. And perhaps the worst case of all that has come to light is that of Father Massiel. Father Massiel, the monster priest of 
Latin America, Mexico, who set up an incredibly misogynistic right-wing order, which, uh, and, and he would go around it uh, demanding to be masturbated by the younger boys uh, in the order. He married several women. Um, he told them that he was a CIA agent and didn't have much time for domestic life. And uh, he had children who also he uh, sodomized. And the, in 1998, Cardinal Ratzinger had 11 sworn declarations by his victims. Nothing was done because he was a friend of John Paul II. Uh, the Mexican papers started to publish details of this. He was a, a, a bigamist, a drug taker, a child molester, a rapist. Uh, nothing was done. And in, in uh, 2004, he was brought to the Vatican and blessed publicly by John Paul II. Uh, after John Paul's death and, and uh, Benedict XVI was finally free to deal with this monster priest. How did he deal with him? And this is the acid test, I think, because a lot of Benedict's supporters say, oh, the, it was really John Paul and his coterie who were stopping any action uh, against the paedophiles because they were friendly with them. Uh, it was, he dealt with them by writing him a letter, inviting him uh, to retire to a, a place of quietitude. He did not defrock him. He did not hand over the evidence that had been in his hands for eight years uh, to the police. He arranged for him to go quietly uh, out of the spotlight to uh, retirement in New York. Uh, that is Father Massiel and that says uh, a lot about the obsession of the Vatican with its canon law and with its secrecy. But when you just think about it, given that there are 400,000 priests if 5% of them are, in fact, child molesters, we're talking about 20,000, uh, and we're talking about uh, up to 100,000 children who have been molested by priests of the Catholic Church under the uh, discipline of the Vatican, which has imposed utter secrecy, a canon law which doesn't punish them and doesn't usually even defrock them. Now, we got very angry last week. There were editorials, right, left and centre, about 140 women and children who were raped in the Congo when the United Nations forces turned a blind eye. Uh, what are we to say about tens of thousands, up to 100,000 children abused by uh, priests? Nothing has been said. The Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, totally quiet. Uh, the... Um, Convention on the Rights of the Child, which has been so blatantly breached, the expert committee has said nothing, despite all the publicity. Uh, I think the reason is, actually, because of the wonderful work that is done by so many, by Caritas and CAFOD and so many uh, Catholic aid organizations. I mean, when I was in Western Africa, the, the worst part, if you like, of Africa, it was the, the UN workers who were often at the only air-conditioned hotel. It was the Catholic uh, nuns and priests who were out in the malarial jungle uh, risking uh, their, their health for, to look after HIV-AIDS 
patients, notwithstanding the fact that some of those patients at least were there as a result of the refusal of the Catholic Church to allow condoms to be used even between married couples uh, where there was an HIV positive person. So I think that kind of uh, affection that we have for those Catholic groups has perhaps blinded human rights organizations uh, against seeing this as the atrocity it is. But why has it, why is the Catholic Church so obsessed with protecting its own and with canon law uh, secrecy? The uh, case that I think is most telling is that of Bishop Pican, who was the Bishop of Bayonne, who was aware, not through uh, the confessional, but because the paedophile priest uh, told him that he had uh, been uh, sodomizing children, and uh, he uh, and, and the he, he didn't do anything. The priest went on uh, to sodomize more children, and he was actually prosecuted in France. The, the bishop for uh, under a law that uh, was a kind of misprision of felony law uh, that. Um, and uh, he was prepared to go to prison. He got, in fact, a suspended sentence. And after he received that sentence for his refusal to denounce the police, or to, to provide the police with the evidence he had of the priest's guilt, he was written a letter, a letter on behalf of John Paul uh, II, which was supported by uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. This was 2001. I congratulate you for not denouncing the priest to the civil administration, said the letter. And it was that congratulation to the bishop was uh, circulated by Cardinal Ratzinger to all bishops of the church. Um, and the cardinal who had actually written it, uh, Cardinal Hodros, uh, said in March of this year that after consulting the Pope, I wrote this letter congratulating him as a model father who does not hand over his own sons. I was authorized to send it by the Holy Father and Cardinal Ratzinger. So that shows the extent of the contumely uh, in the Vatican towards the requirements of state law enforcement. Priests must be dealt with under canon law. Now canon law has two very striking features. The first, which is spelt out repeatedly, is the need for complete secrecy. Not to protect the victim, but to avoid scandalizing the church or the reputation of the church. Secondly, nowhere in canon law is there any requirement for sympathy for the victim or indeed for compensation for the victim. Canon law procedures are medieval. Canon law trials are conducted entirely by priests, so they're biased in favor of the defendant priest. There is no cross-examination. It's all in writing, right? all in writing with character evidence Required, and of course, there's no difficulty in getting character evidence from uh, for the priest. Uh, then uh, there's no DNA testing. There's no medical examination. 
There's no, uh, which is routine in cases of sexual offences. These trials uh, are conducted in a complete vacuum. There is an evidential vacuum, no medical examination. Everyone is sworn to secrecy if the victim, the victim makes the complaint and has to sign uh, a document uh, swearing him to secrecy on pain of excommunication. So the police never get to hear of the proceedings. Now, of course, <laughs> what is the punishment in the rare cases where someone is found guilty under canon law? Uh, there is no real punishment. The punishment is a penance. Go and say prayers for a month for your victim. Well, <laughs> that is hardly what the victim wants to be prayed for by his abuser. And yet, that is the penalty that uh, canon law, in rare cases, and the cases that must be approved personally by the Pope, usually, in fact, by the head of the CDF, uh, there can be laicization, uh, which is uh, defrocking. So that is the very worst that can happen to you under a canon law trial, a, a trial which is uh, covered by the utter, uh, conducted in utter secrecy. And uh, I, the, um, when, when the US bishops raised with Cardinal Ratzinger uh, the question of whether they should change canon law to require reporting of offenders, he refused, he said the church reaffirms her right to enact legislation concerning the ecclesiastical dimensions of the delict of sexual abuse of minors. Well, uh, that is extraordinary that uh, the church's finest theologian could think that acts of masturbating or sodomizing small boys had any ecclesiastical dimension at all, and that he believed the state had the right to run a legal, secret legal system of, uh, to deal with sex abuse by priests in friendly countries was really quite amazing. It is, I think, clearly uh, the error of rendering unto God the things that are Caesar's. It is the right of the state and the necessity of the state to prosecute child abuse as a serious crime. It may be a sin, it may be that after the trial the church can take uh, it's the appropriate action as a disciplinary matter. But uh, Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger as he was in 2002, Benedict as he is now in 2010, uh, who has the control, I mean he's the king, the outer emperor, he is the lawmaker of canon law, and he's been requested by the English bishops, by the American bishops, by so many uh, sources to actually impose a rule zero tolerance, that, that, that credible evidence must be handed over to the police. And in his changes to canon law that were promulgated in 2010, uh, he deliberately refused to uh, insert that as an amendment. Uh, he's rejected the suggestion that bishops should be under any duty to uh, provide uh, clear evidence of paedophile priests molesting children and continuing to molest children uh, to the police. 
uh, or to law enforcement authorities. He has refused to make the zero tolerance option automatic defrocking of any priest who's convicted. Uh, he's also refused to make that a rule of the universal church. So canon law, this sclerotic medieval process, uh, is the way the church insists that as a state it is entitled to uh, run, entitled to keep canon law. Well, as a state, what sort of state is it? This is uh, fascinating. Have you been to the Vatican, any of you? I'm sure most of you have, to the, um, the great uh, Peter's, uh, St. Peter's Square, to the Basilica, uh, to, uh, and you've seen that it is, in fact, a palace with museums uh, and with gardens, and that's all it is. There are no people. The Montevideo Convention on Statehood defines as a matter of law what a state is. It's got to have people. Well, there are no people. Uh, there are no Vaticanians. Uh, the, <laughs> the Pope uh, is there part of the time, but the whole, everything, the sewage, the, the policing, if you um, hit someone in St. Peter's Square, it's the Italian police, the Carbonari who come in and arrest you. Uh, it, the whole uh, area is serviced by uh, the uh, by Italy. It's part of Italy. It's part of Rome, and uh, it's not a state. How did it ever come to be one? Well, thereby hangs the tale, and it's a tale of fascism uh, in Italy. It is a tale of Mussolini and of one particular bishop who uh, was the first to hail him as the, as the savior of Italy, who allowed fascist flags in his cathedral, who then became pope and hailed him as the man to save Italy, who didn't, when he killed his death squad, killed the courageous Matteotti, who was arguing, uh, who was revealing the crimes and corruption of the fascist party, the pope kept silent and for that silence he was rewarded by the Lateran Treaty of 1929, a treaty that was essential to Mussolini uh, because he wanted the support of the Catholic Church and he got it, 98% voted thanks to the Church's uh, insistence that, that, that all its adherents vote for him uh, in favour of a one-party state. The Lateran Treaty was not a treaty at all a treaty is an agreement between states. The Lateran Treaty was an agreement between the fascist state uh, and the church in Italy, designed to achieve the hegemony of fascism in Italy. It was entirely Italy-centric. And yet, this is the treaty that uh, uh, is, is relied upon by the church to claim that it is a sovereign state. Uh, it is, of course, nothing of the sort. But that claim to sovereignty was accepted, of course, first by Hitler, thanks to the 1933 Concordat, and then by a lot of Catholic countries, but not by the majority of states until uh, it occurred to Ronald Reagan that it was a very good idea to have a state at the United Nations that was totally anti-communist as John Paul was and in 1984 uh, America acknowledged 
that the uh, Vatican, that the Holy See was a state uh, and many other countries followed. So that over 170 countries have some kind of relationship, some diplomats, some diplomatic relation with the Vatican. And the Vatican has been allowed a special position at the United Nations as a state. How, however, has it used that position? It has used it to attack many of the human rights initiatives that the United Nations has tried to get up. It's given incredibly six seats at the General Assembly. It can do anything that a state can do at the General Assembly uh, except vote. And it's wrecked a number of conferences, beginning with the Cairo Conference on Population and Development in 1995. It ran a propaganda campaign about family planning and contraception. It alleged that reproductive health meant abortion, which was a heinous evil. Tolerance of homosexuality, another heinous evil. It forged alliances, an unholy alliance with Libya and Iran, uh, to object to the proposed right to sexual health. And it attended the PrepComs in Cairo and Beijing for the International Criminal Court. And it vetoes, using its power that it's been given at the United Nations uh, in cohorts, usually with Catholic states of Latin America and some Muslim states, it has opposed the inclusion of any language in any declaration or convention that uh, sends a shudder up its spiritual spine. Here are the words that uh, the Vatican uh, or the Holy See vetoes. Gender, gender equality, sexual orientation, unwanted pregnancy, unsafe abortion, sex education, reproductive health, contraception, reproductive rights, sexual health, couples and individuals, and even lifestyle. <laughs> Any phraseology that could conceivably concern abortion, even after incest and rape in the ICC, even after a rape by uh, soldiers uh, killing husband and children uh, at the same time uh, is anathema. It opposes the availability of condoms to con curtail the uh, plague of AIDS. It objects to the attendance of other Catholic organizations that uh, are relaxed about abortion uh, as even having uh, observer status. And uh, of course it's uh, attacked the UN programs, the UN population program, which has suffered massive cuts in consequence, and uh, it uses its statehood power in ways that I can I go into in the book, I won't trouble you with them now, uh, in order to uh, put pressure on national politicians to vote uh, against the decriminalization of abortion or any other uh, point of uh, dogma that uh, the Catholic Church. In, in some countries, indeed in El Salvador, uh, it even required its politicians to pass, which they did, uh, a law that requires condom packets to be stamped uh, with a warning that this offers no protection against AIDS.
But seriously, that's a law uh, passed in El Salvador. In Brazil, uh, they not only criminalize abortion, but require doctors to report to police when women come into hospitals bleeding from uh, self-administered terminations. Uh, and a hundred women are waiting trial in Brazil at the moment, informed on by doctors. It's a very strange Christianity that requires reporting to police of injured women, but not of molesting priests. But there is the way uh, the Holy See has exploited its statehood uh, at the United Nations and uh, we see in the case of the convention, it, it has only signed, ratified two human rights conventions. One is the Convention Against Torture, uh, which it ratified with a reservation that seems to preserve the right to torture in hell. Uh, that's uh, quite seriously. Uh, and, and it has, uh, it, it has uh, of course, ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And boy, has it broken it. It's breached it monumentally. Article 3.1 says, in all actions concerning children, the best interests of the child shall be a primary consideration. Well, the evidence shows that uh, the primary consideration, as Judge Murphy said, was the good name and reputation of the church and protecting priests from scandal. Um, the Article 19, state parties shall take all appropriate legislative administrative action to um, stop abuse, including sexual abuse. Such protective massive matters shall include effective procedures for judicial involvement. Uh, there's a duty under in the convention to um, uh, requiring the reporting of child sex offenders to law enforcement authorities, which is blatantly breached by maintaining the pontifical secrecy proceedings of, of requirements of canon law, uh, and so on and so forth. There have, as I say, been the most blatant breaches of that convention. Uh, otherwise, the Holy See has refused uh, to sign those or ratify other human rights conventions. So at the end of the day, uh, this Holy See is not a state. It doesn't satisfy the legal criterion of statehood, no matter how many states have ratified it, uh, have, have sent delegations. Um, it, it's a great thing for politicians to be able to visit the Pope. Tony Blair did so four times while he was in office. Uh, George Bush did so twice in his first year. President Putin did so four, has done so four times, having the blessing, uh, kissing the fisherman's ring uh, and getting the blessing. I suspect that uh, Gordon Brown uh, invited the Pope on a state visit rather than a church visit uh, in, order, in the hope that uh, it would be a sop to uh, Catholic voters uh, without realizing that it would cost all voters, whether they're Muslims or Jewish or atheists, uh, a very large sum of taxpayers' money. That is the, I think, uh, the solution to the crisis for the Catholic Church is perhaps to forswear the beguilements of power, of statehood, 
the immunities that it brings, the UN soapbox for your dogmas, to put yourself on the same basis as other religions and to then be concerned to have your priests judged by the state in which they're working, unless, there's always the exception, unless there's a persecution of Catholics in which raises, a, which is always the exception, which there may be, and uh, this is always the argument against mine that, oh, well, there are some states where Catholics are persecuted. Well, in that case, make the exception. But in general, there must be uh, a, an acceptance that statehood is no longer doing the church any good. It doesn't, in fact, uh, give the church uh, a kind, it discriminates in favor of the church, of this particular church, in a way that is no longer acceptable. And that the answer may be to forswear statehood, to adopt zero tolerance, to end benefit of clergy, a medieval concept anyway, and to submit yourself, even to submit your leader to the rule of law, the rule of international law. Thank you. I think the measure of the response speaks for itself. But now that we've heard the case uh, of the Pope um, and the issue of the accountability of human rights abuse, what we have to say, now is the time to ask your burning questions, but as you do so, I'll just uh, remind you that please tell us your name and your affiliation. This is not for reasons of Big Brother, it's just that <laughs> the lectures and all the questions, the interactions are recorded and they'll be on podcast. So it's one way of becoming famous because you're actually speaking to a global audience that's going to listen to the lectures and the questions. Who would like to start? Yes, please. Three questions. Um, I think Hello, my name is Shreya and I'm an LSE alumnus and I'm a social development consultant. Thank you for your lecture. You started out very interestingly by saying that you're not an atheist, you're a lawyer, and you can see both sides of an argument. I'd like you to keep that in mind. Um, this year I attended a very interesting debate um, as part of the Intelligence Square debate, where the proposition was, this house shall rescind the UK invitation to the Pope, and I'd like to know how you would, what your arguments would be against the proposition, given that you've criticised um, the Pope and the statehood issue, and obviously the human rights abuse issues. Thank you. The lady in front, and I'll take someone on the side of the room. There's no one. The gentleman in the middle with a green jacket. Start first, please. Yeah. Um, uh, my name's Kim Husbands. Um, I have no particular affiliation. Um, I just basically want to know if you said five percent. Five percent are, you know, um, basically pedophiles, right? Is there any is there any way that they could be outed in public by the other ninety-five percent to their congregation directly? So that, um, so that at least the congregation is protected, and what would be the, the the problems with that if it was to happen? You know, I mean, would they be defrocked? 
You're passing over your question? I saw you shake your head. Uh, my name is Keith Waters with the National Secular Society. I've been uh, fortunate to have actually put up a question in the UN Human Rights Council uh, criticizing the Holy See over child abuse. Uh, and the answer, I have to say, was disingenuous in the extreme. Uh, the question I have is how can the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child be made less supine? Because that seems to me a key to the solution to the problem. Thank you. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm attracted for some reason to this microphone. Uh, three good questions. Let's deal with the whistleblowing one first. Uh, how do you expect brethren to out their brethren? They go to seminaries, they have a sodality, the priesthood. They are one for all and all for one. It's very, very difficult. Canon law has no protection for whistleblowers. There is absolutely none. Whistleblowing is a crime under canon law. Whistleblowing, you're excommunicated. And in the book, I tell one very moving story of a priest uh, who was aware that the head of the local Catholic college and a number of other priests were involved in a paedophile ring uh, who were passing boys around and uh, he went to the bishop, he went to everyone he could and they, absolutely nothing was done. So he finally he went to the local newspaper and it splashed the story the police, who'd been reluctant to investigate because one or two of them were part of the ring, of course, uh, were finally activated. They prosecuted uh, and convictions were obtained and these priests, pedophile priests, brothers, went to prison. You know what happened to the whistleblower? He was sent to Coventry. He was ostracized. He was... Uh, so depressed and at one point someone said to him how could you how could you betray a brother and he said courageously he said uh, a paedophile is no brother of mine and uh, he committed suicide he was so depressed and, and because of the hatred of the, his fellows and so that culture has to change the culture of priests protect priests has to change priests must be taught that they don't, you see they're brought up you've got the protection of canon law they're taught for poverty, chastity and obedience, you get the protection of canon law, you, you won't be um, and, and you know, this is, is quite uh, wrong and so uh, the problem of the whistleblower priest is one of the great problems I think of canon law um, canon law has a Every church, every Masonic organization has disciplinary codes and canon law has uh, provisions against uh, destroying the host or, or dealing inappropriately with other religions or ordaining women. You know, this is a great crime under canon law. And when uh, the other day when uh, the, the Pope changed canon law, he made ordaining women um, he made as serious a crime as raping children. And uh, this was uh, met with horror 
through most of the world, but there was a, a very <laughs> informed Catholic bishop who said, this is the wrong way of looking at it. He said, this is progress. This means the church actually is regarding raping children as, as serious as ordaining women. <laughs> I think, uh, Keith, your question is one that I did agonize over because something has to be done. I mean, the UN has this convention, and it's the crown jewels of the UN convention. It's the only convention which has near universal support. 193 states have signed the convention, ratified the convention uh, to protect children. Uh, the only two that haven't are Somalia, a failed state, and the United States. Somalia has ratified. It's ratified. <laughs> You're more up to date than I am. So it's only the United States that has, has not yet ratified it, which is disgraceful. But it is, at least the US has signed it, uh, although it hasn't ratified it. So uh, it is the, the only convention that has that near universal support. It has a committee of experts. I looked them up. None of them uh, ex had expertise that was certainly known to me. Um, and uh, they have done nothing, and it's a scandal. Uh, it is, it, the, the Holy See is not only in breach, blatant breach of various provisions, it hasn't even put in its report. Uh, it did run report about 20 years ago, and it hasn't reported. So, you know, what, what purpose is this uh, convention? I think the only thing I, can, I could do is do a chapter on it in, in the book and uh, just draw attention to the failure to, um, to implement this convention. Uh, it doesn't have teeth because the Committee of Experts uh, is uh, useless, really. Um, now, uh, yes, what would I say uh, to uh, those who wanted the Pope to tour? Well, for a start, I would say that uh, he should be invited, as he was in back in 82, as head of the church. That would be, uh, he, he would be deserving of the respect that is due to the head of any church, a religion that brings joy and comfort uh, to many millions. So uh, I would say that, and I'd actually uh, quite believe that, that uh, that is how he should have been invited. He should not have been invited as head of a state. I mean, it's extraordinary what has to happen. He gets off the flying Pope-mobile uh, in Edinburgh, <laughs> and wearing his head of state regalia, which is uh, a special color, fur, rough, red stripes, and so forth. Uh, and he meets the queen, the head of state uh, of this country, who has to wear black. That's the etiquette. He has to, queen Elizabeth has to wear black because only Catholic queens can wear white in the Pope's presence. Uh, <laughs> seriously. Uh, but then the Pope has to duck into the nearest sort of Pope toilet and change <laughs> into, into rather more uh, hu humble garb of his white clothes as head of the church. A uh, little hat and uh, so forth, his white uh, garb where he then conducts the mass, mass, mass at uh, Glasgow. So uh, that is the, uh, quite how ridiculous on a visual level his uh, statehood is. Those, I, I think I would, if um, forced to an intelligence squared debate, uh, would uh, probably say what the um, ignorant Guardian leader said 
the other day. I haven't been reading Guardian leaders since they urged their uh, everyone to vote Liberal Democrat. Uh, <laughs> not because, not necessarily because of that, because it's very condescending uh, for that uh, paper in particular to tell its readers how to vote. But um, when it told its readers that the, it said, as a matter of fact, I couldn't believe it, as a matter of fact, the Pope is uh, head of a state. And uh, they said it's very good that we should have him because um, he can... Um, they're, they're our only chance of protecting the, the rainforests of Latin America uh, are if we talk to the Pope or something like that. I, <laughs> I, had to, I thought to myself, well, the rainforests of Latin America would be far safer if the uh, Cardinal Ratzinger hadn't expelled all the liberation uh, theologians <laughs> who were trying, trying to save them back in the 90s. Uh, there is a belief, look, there is a belief, and it's, there's a... a a letter to the new statesman tomorrow from some minister, a junior minister in this government, whom I'm afraid I've forgotten his name. Can you? Henry Bannerman Barristan. So, some, so, the junior minister of the Foreign Office wrote to the new statesman uh, a, a deliberate, a deceitful letter claiming that, uh, uh, quite, quite apart from uh, the fact that uh, I had pointed out that. Uh, we spend an absolute fortune on having a separate embassy next to the Vatican, which is next door to our embassy to Rome. And it doesn't do a thing. It, uh, I, ra I rang the bell. I said, have you got an appointment? I said, no, I've lost my passport in the Sistine Chapel. Oh, go away. <laughs> That's the business of the embassy to Rome, uh, to Italy. So uh, we have to spend all this money uh, to satisfy the uh, statehood pretensions of the Vatican. And uh, the, the Foreign Office wrote to me saying, oh, it's because of the Lateran Treaty that we have to do this. And uh, it was, of course, uh, the Lateran Treaty says nothing of the sort. But the uh, minister said, oh, look, it's very important that we have, we have very creative dialogue with the uh, Vatican on issues like uh, population. Well, I can imagine what the dialogue on <laughs> population is and human rights. It's, uh, ironically, I had uh, filed under the Freedom of Information Act to find out what this dialogue was. And uh, I got a reply back saying that uh, the, I couldn't be told what the dialogue was because this would, uh, under the exemption which prevented the release of documents which might imperil our relationship with the, with the other side, with the Holy See. So uh, the public can't be told. But that is the sort of argument one would make that the Vatican has, uh, the Holy See, has some weight with Catholic countries, uh, we should acknowledge it as a state and become very friendly and, you know, send Anne Whittacombe as a retirement uh, ambassador uh, <laughs> to the Vatican. She was offered it and uh, preferred uh, strictly come dancing. <laughs> uh, uh, but this is, I would, this is quite corrupt, I think, to actually give Catholic Tory politicians the prize of uh, consoling themselves uh, in their retirement with their, uh, in their religion as, as our ambassador. So, but that would be the kind of argument that I would make. I think uh, there may be a little bit in it, oh, we get intelligence. If we, we pad around the, the Vatican, we can pick up intelligence about what's happening in Catholic 
countries. Well, we, uh, I did a Freedom of Information Act search which discovered that our embassy to the Vatican uh, has a party every week for Vatican diplomats and uh, thousands of Vatican diplomats are entertained over the year uh, with uh, kind of champagne and canopy at the uh, British taxpayers' expense in order to pick up these uh, tidbits of information which I suspect would be more easily found in the, in the newspapers. But uh, I would, uh, that would be the line, I think, that uh, I would take in saying that we should uh, continue to uh, acknowledge the statehood of the Holy See. Okay, so uh, we are stopping sharply at 19.45, so I'll take uh, three more short questions. I think there's a gentleman right here in the middle first. Uh, the gentleman, yes, and there's a lady, I can't see anyone this side, but I, we have to have gender balance, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mr. Robertson, thank you very much for that talk, uh, parts of it which uh, were you know, very good bits of fiction. Um, 5%, by the way, actually refers to people who have been accused, not found guilty. Um, Peter Huleman, was, you know, the Pope was not told that he was an abuser, and in fact he did not transfer him to the parish. That was actually the Vicar General Gerhard Guber. Um, but I'll, I'll actually skip down to all the errors and just go to the one where I want to talk about, which is your idea of canon law. You assume that canon law is some kind of parallel criminal justice system for the Catholic Church, which it isn't. It actually only deals with canonical procedures within the Church, much as the rules within, for example, a corporation work. Um, you suggest that uh, typical secrecy is about saying, well, you can't talk to the police, you cannot go to the criminal um, authorities, um, that is civil authorities of criminal law, about these matters. Actually, that's complete, utter nonsense. And one wonders whether or not you did read Crimus or Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, or Delictus Graviorbus, or any of the documents we actually talk about this, um, because clearly you've got the wrong idea about it. So are you either profoundly ignorant of the issues, or are you lying through your teeth? Oh yes, right, right, right. My name is uh, Kevin, and uh, I'm, I'm organising debate at the Battle of Ideas uh, on the Catholic Church. I think the leaflets are in front of you. But I, I was brought up a Catholic in uh, in Belfast. Was educated by the Christian Brothers. I'm an atheist. Um, I don't believe in God or, or the Catholic religion. My, my family, my father, are, are, are still practicing Catholics. And I have a question, Jeffrey, it's this. Why is it that otherwise intelligent people like yourself have a license to be ignorant when it comes to matters of the Catholic Church? And when you say no one's talking about abuse by the Catholic Church, I have to ask what planet are you living on? Because it seems to me that with the visit of the Pope, rather than have a real honest debate out loud politically and theologically, because a lot of what you said was political and theological and not legal, what, rather than have that debate out loud, it seems to me that a lot of secularists and a lot of anti-Catholics are just throwing a lot of bile and dirt, and they're playing their particular prejudice. And there's no doubt about it that a lot of you people who think that they're liberals and open-minded seem to suspend those faculties when it comes to the Catholic Church. And if you replace the word Catholic Church with Jew or Muslim, I don't think you would get away with a lot of things that you say about the Church. 
Okay, so let's, my let's question, my, my, well, my question please. is about the context. My question is about the context of the book that was written by Jeffrey. And I, I'm not so sure that it's a brave attempt defending the underdog. And when you talk about canon law, and when you talk about priest and confession, as you did in your New Statesman article, is it not the case that even though you disagree with people, that you have to defend the right of organizations who have beliefs different from yourself? Is it not the case that you should, if you are a liberal and open-minded, that you should defend organizations that are separate from the state and people who freely choose to enter those organizations voluntarily? Because you seem to want to drag everything into the framework of the legal and the state, and I don't think it's half as progressive as you make out. Thank you. Maybe... Excuse me. There's the lady... My name is Joyce Arnold. I have a legal question rather than a political or theological question. Um, thank you for your talk. I found it very interesting. Um, and I know that you have a great deal of experience in unusual criminal trials. Um, so I have a lawyer's question, which is how would one go about doing this? What jurisdiction, what court, should there be an ICTV? Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, we have questions and not the uh, rotten eggs that I was expecting uh, <laughs> as a leftover from Mr. Blair's uh, cancelled uh, book launch tonight. But uh, let's look at first the bile and dirt. Look, I begin my book by saying every person is entitled to claim the right to religion and to manifest it in community with others by teaching, practice, worship and observance. The corollary of this right is that churches must be free to propound the tenets of their respective faiths, but always subject to laws necessary in a democracy to protect public interests and the rights and freedoms of others. Uh, I have always protected and worked for churches and religions and the right uh, in those terms. Uh, but when uh, those religions trespass upon the rights of others when tens of thousands of children are sodomized then it seems to me that uh, it is necessary for all those who wish the spiritual life of the church to continue to comfort uh, its people nonetheless to speak out and to say quite frankly what went wrong. We speak out about other human rights atrocities uh, when we're not members of the country uh, and we're entitled to speak out when something, a phenomenon as appalling as this happens. So I make no excuse at all for criticizing uh, the Catholic Church and the leaders of it which, uh, who have, whose negligence has allowed this to happen. As to the question on canon law, I don't know what planet you're from, but buy my book, buy my book and read the canon law sections uh, that are set out at the back. And you will see that all uh, 
proceedings under canon law against priests as subject to pontifical secrecy. You will see the definition of pontifical secrecy, which is the most utter secrecy of all, that is punished uh, on breach by excommunication. You will see it uh, appended not only to crimen, uh, the 1962 uh, canon law procedure, but to Cardinal Ratzinger's uh, letter, uh, ap apostolic letter in 2001, which ended cases of this kind as subject to the pontifical secret, and you will see it appended to his uh, De Graviorebus Delictus uh, in July 2010. Uh, whoever has violated the secret whether deliberately, ex dolo, or through grave negligence, is to be punished with an appropriate penalty by the higher turns at the insistence uh, of the injured party or even ex officio. So that there is a definition, Article 30 of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's latest proclamation, cases of this nature are subject to the pontifical secret. Whoever violates it uh, must be punished. Uh, so there it is. I can't say anything more uh, by the book if you think uh, that I've misstated canon law. Uh, by all means, write and tell me. What you don't understand, where canon law is different from any other disciplinary process, is that it purports to deal with serious crimes. There's no objection to canon law dealing with heresy, with schism, to apostasy. They are appropriate. But uh, when it deals with the sexual abuse of minors, then that is a serious crime that should be left to the local law. Finally, how would you go about prosecuting the Pope? Is that, is that right? Well, uh, you would probably uh, go under international criminal law. Uh, you would go to a country where, which has universal jurisdiction, uh, which Britain doesn't have full ju universal jurisdiction. You'd probably go to Belgium or Germany, which is the Pope's home country. You would then uh, look at the definition of crimes against humanity, and you would see that it covers uh, widespread and systematic uh, abuse of children, because that can be read in from uh, Article 7 of the Rome Convention. Uh, and then you would look at the doctrine of command responsibility, which is the doctrine that is, uh, was used uh, against the Charles Taylor against the Milosevic. Uh, it derived from the case of Yamashita in 1946, and it is in Article 27 of the Rome Treaty, where a commander is liable, even though he didn't want the crime to happen, where he failed to take action to prevent it, or he failed to punish the perpetrators. It's not a most serious offence, it's much less serious than actually committing the crime. But there is in international law a provision uh, of command responsibility that makes it an offence under international law to being in a position of command to fail to punish uh, the perpetrator of crimes against humanity. So you would go down that line and you would probably do it uh, in Belgium or in a country which has uh, no time limits, 
which is not bound by the 2002 cutoff point which uh, the um, ICC has at the moment. So uh, uh, that is how, if you wanted to prosecute the Pope, uh, you would go about it. But the very fact that uh, the Pope, this Pope or the next Pope, might be liable to prosecution, the very fact that uh, there is a possibility that this head of state is accountable to international law should act itself as a deterrent for the Catholic Church of the Vatican acting in the way it has in the past. And for that, I think the development of international criminal law uh, will have uh, a, a useful deterrent effect. Now it just remains for me to thank Geoffrey Robertson very much for his lecture and for the audience for coming to listen to him. There's a book signing ceremony outside, straight at the back. Um, straight at the back. Um, and sitting in front of the lecture theatre, I just can't resist saying that if you're interested in the main question raised in the book, look at paragraph 9. The methodology is in paragraph um, 12. You might find that interesting. And may I just please kindly ask you to remain seated while I escort Mr. Robinson, Robertson outside the room. Thank you. Mm -hmm.